0: Well, about a year ago, I think it was February 8th, um, around that time, just this, this kind of movement of God's Spirit began to, began to move throughout the United States in a, in a really a fresh and a very unique way. And so over the last year, there's been so many stories of, of churches who just like they've been caught up in God's grace in a way that they haven't been caught up before. And, and we're just seeing incredible things. I would say even at Redeemer for, for months, there was something very special about this nine o'clock service where multiple people are saying, I don't know what it is, but there's just something Something's happening in this service, and we don't know what it is, but we want to be a part of it. And it was, a, it was such an, a sweet season. But a, a church that I follow over the last year, they just recapped what happened. And it was, it was amazing. Over the last year, they had grown, I mean, just by the thousands. And so as they were growing as a church, they were trying to do everything they could to, to like, like, what are we, like, how do we not grow this fast? They were starting new service times, shifting service times, they were launching new campuses. But over the course of that year, they saw 2,157 people baptized. 600 were students, the next generation. They took up a special offering. They were able to cancel 2.7 million dollars in medical debt in their community, and they were able to give away seven million dollars to global missions. Um, you looked at their—they started a food pantry, and in the food pantry, they were able to feed just um, just shy of 3,000 um, meals through their food pantry. And just you look at the stuff that God was doing in and through the life of this church. And you're going man is that just a one off is that one church that is experiencing something incredible or is it happening in other places and so if you look throughout the country i mean this isn't just happening in one place it was happening all over the United States last year. Churches in um, in Jacksonville, Florida were experiencing this, Atlanta, Georgia, Nashville, Tennessee. You had the Asbury Revival in Kentucky, Phoenix, Arizona, Dallas, Texas, and even, even Southern California was experiencing revival. And one pastor described it like this. He said, it feels like we are a kite caught in a hurricane of God's grace. A kite caught in a hurricane of God's grace. And so what would it look like for us To be that kite? What would it look like for us as a church to just be overwhelmed and caught up in a hurricane of God's grace for us? And so I truly believe there are four things that if we would get these things right, if we would embody them, if we would live them out, um, we can't send the fire, so to speak. That's a God thing, but we can lay the logs. We can stack the wood. And so I think these four things are are building the the foundation for God to send His Spirit and to empower us in an incredible way. And I truly believe if we get these things right, God is going to move in and through the life of our church in a way that he's never done before. And so last week, we kicked this off by talking about what it means for us to be a generously driven church, which is way more than just giving 10% of your income. Generosity is in a whole life mentality. It's saying everything that God has given me, I want to steward for his kingdom. Today, we're going to look at what it means for us to be biblically serious Next week is missionally active, and then we will wrap up the series with with us needing to be a spirit-empowered church. And so these are not just get one right, get two right, get three right. We want to embody all four of these things to lay the foundation for God to do a work in and through us like he's never done before. All right, so today, biblically serious. And some of you already tuned out. You're like... (sighs) sounds like this is the, for the nerds, right? Like, this is the theologians, the people who drink coffee and wear glasses and hang out in coffee shops. Like, this isn't my thing. But let me just, let me start off with this. Think about the last year or the last season. I want you to think about what, what's one of the best books you've read, right? Over the last season of your life, think about what is one of the best books you've read. I know some of you, you read 10 books last year alone. Some of you have read one book in the last 10 years, right? Like, and like in others, you are across the board. For me, one of the best books that I read recently that was not a Christian book was a book called Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell. And I I really enjoyed it. It kind of took me back. It made me think things differently. And and I could sit down with you and talk to you about the basic premise of the book and, and what he was talking about, probably pique your interest, and I could convince you that Talking to Strangers is a good book that you should read, I'm pretty confident I could convince you that that is a good book that you should read. But I want you to know this today, right? Today, my goal isn't to convince you. My goal is not to convince you that the Bible is a good book you should read. Right, because if that's the mentality you have, if you're like, it's going to read like Harry Potter, it's going to read like a, a mystery, it's going to read like a, a great novel. If you approach the Bible in that with that mentality, you're probably going to find yourself a little bit frustrated, a little bit overwhelmed, and a little bit confused. Right. So my goal today is not to convince you that the Bible is a good book you should read, but for you to see Scripture as God's personal invitation for you to know Him, for you to know His heart and for you to know the good life he has for you to live. So I want you to see Scripture as God's personal invitation to know the heart of God. All right, so 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Let me give you some some quick context to 2 Timothy real quick. All right, so if you read the the New Testament, Luke and Paul wrote most of the New Testament. All right, Luke and Paul. And Paul is this apostle that took three different missionary journeys, on these missionary journeys, he started a bunch of churches. So he would go to places that there were no churches, and he would build a church from the ground up. Before he would move on to start another church, one of the primary things he did was to make sure that church had good leadership in place. So he would appoint elders, he would make sure there was good leadership, and then he would set them up for success, and he would go on to the next town, right? One of the churches he started was a church in a town called Ephesus, and one of the leaders he appointed to this church was a guy named Timothy. Now, Paul had appointed leaders in all these churches, but there was something special about his relationship with Timothy to the point that he saw Timothy as a spiritual son. So Paul had no kids, but he looked at Timothy and said, you're the closest thing to a son I've ever had. So he writes two letters to Timothy to encourage him in the work that he's done, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. You guys are sharp, all right? 2 Timothy. Now, what's what's so unique about 2 Timothy, though, is this. This is the last letter Paul writes before he dies. The last letter he writes. And as you read 2 Timothy, you can feel that he knows his end is near. So he knows these are some of the last words he will ever say, words specifically to the person that's closest to him as a son that he could ever have. So you better believe these words are super meaningful to him. They're still for us, but they are to Timothy, but they carry a lot of weight for Paul as they're the last things he will say to his son, right. So, what, one of the things that he says is when he's talking to Timothy is he says, "Look, there are so many teachings out there. There are so many philosophies out there. What you need to do is you need to stick to the basics. Stick to the Bible." So, one of the last things that Paul is going to say to his spiritual son is, "Never move on from Scripture." grow deeper into it. Don't move on from Scripture. Stick to the Bible, All right? So with that being said, let's jump into chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. Starting in verse 14, he said, "...but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith In Christ Jesus. Right? And so, in these verses, when Paul talks about the sacred writings, he's talking about the Old Testament here. He says, You know the Old Testament, you know the Hebrew scriptures. And he says that the Hebrew scriptures were able to make one wise to salvation, which is crazy because he's not talking about the New Testament yet. He's talking about the Old Testament and how everything you need to be saved by grace through faith, can be found in the Hebrew Bible or in the Old Testament scriptures. And so think about it like this. Let's say that I handed this side of the room a bunch of paper. I give you guys just blank sheets of white paper, and I said, all right, you guys, I want you to draw me the Mona Lisa, right? And so some of you are like, I'm an artist. I've got this. And other of you, others of you, look, it'll look like MS paint. Like, it's like, like, I don't know, like you got a big old head and a stick body. But then let's say over here, I gave you guys paper, but all of your papers had numbers, like one, two, three, there's little dots and numbers. And you're going, I can do this. And you start connecting the dots. And all of a sudden, as you, as you connect the dots, you guys all create a beautiful picture of Mona Lisa. And over here, it looks horrendous, all right? Like it looks horrible, except for maybe one or two of you. Now, what's happening here is what he's saying is in the Old Testament, everything we need to know for salvation, to know what it means to be saved by grace through faith can be found in the scriptures. You just have to connect the dots, right? So the Old Testament gives everything we know because, at the end of the day, the Old Testament is saturated with Jesus. All of Scripture is ultimately about Jesus. It's saturated with it, so you can find him in its pages, right? So he says that the sacred writings were wise to make you, um, to to wise to make you, or, or were able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Continuing on. He says, all Scripture, all right, now he's talking about, when he says Scripture here, he's talking about both the Old Testament and the New Testament, all right? All of Scripture, both the Old and the New. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So now he says, all of Scripture, everything we have from Genesis to Revelation is is god breathed, right? Now, so what does that mean, right? Well, God breathed helps us to answer the question how we got the Bible. So as you think about the Bible, let me just tell you a little bit about this. The Bible was written by 40 authors, okay? 40 authors. Some of these were were prophets. Some of the authors were kings. Some were fishermen. Some were cupbearers. Some were doctors. I mean, the, the, the style and the backgrounds of the authors are very, very diverse. Now, 40 authors Over the course of 1,500 years, Right, so it took about fifteen hundred years to compile what we would know as the Bible. Right now, the, over this fifteen hundred years, it took place in three different continents. Right, so it's it's taking place in different contexts, different cultural backgrounds. It was written in three different languages. The Old Testament is primarily Hebrew. The New Testament is primarily Greek. There's also a little bit of Aramaic thrown in there. So three different languages. Now the Bible is not one book. It's actually Sixty-six books, right? Thirty-seven um, or t- um, thirty-nine Old Testament books and twenty-seven New Testament books. But what's crazy is fifteen hundred years, forty authors, um, three continents, three languages, sixty-six books. It is—it's it's telling us one story. It's telling us one story, and it's the story about Jesus Christ. So, how do you take something that that spans that? That, that amount of time, that covers that amount of distance, that covers that amount of backgrounds, how do you take something like that and have it completely unified? How do you get this to tell one story and for it to all be about Jesus? This is what we would call dual authorship. Right? That, that's kind of a geeky word. Um, but it, what this means is Scripture was written by human hands. Right? And so, if a fisherman like Peter writes scripture, he is writing kind of with this blue collar, simple vocabulary. If John is writing as a fisherman, he writes with a simple, blue collar vocabulary. But then you have someone like Luke who writes, and he's a doctor. And so he writes with a much more sophisticated style. You have someone like Paul who writes, who is educated at some of the most elite um, educational institutions. And so he writes with a more sophisticated background. God's not trying to change their vocabulary. He's not trying to change their style. So they write with their own unique flavor, yet they do so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to say exactly what God wants them to say, right? So it is written by human hands, but done so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that what we have is not just human words, it is the very word of God that is to us and for us. So all of Scripture is God-breathed, right? Now, what is Scripture good for? What is it profitable for? The first thing we see is that it's profitable for teaching, now, here's, here's another big word. This would be what we would call orthodoxy, right? It's right belief about God, okay? So it's profitable for orthodoxy. It's profitable for teaching. And that word teaching refers to the biblical education of a disciple, right? So it's profitable to help us know some things. Scripture helps us to know rightly about who God is. It helps us to know rightly about who we are um, without Christ, Like, without Jesus in the picture, who are we? What is our condition? It helps us to know who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, and it helps us to know that who we are or who we could be with Christ in the picture. So the Bible helps us to know who God is, who we are, what Jesus has done, and who we can be if we are in Christ. So Scripture teaches us. Now, what's interesting is, if you think about this, if I was just to walk around town and say, all right. Tell me, like, just find a stranger and say, tell me who God is and what you think God is like. If I was to ask that question, I would get answers across the board. Because we're in the Bible Belt, there would probably be, probably be a lot of Christian answers, right? But other people would say, well, I think God's kind of like a genie, kind of like from a lad, Maybe he's not blue, but I think he's here to grant wishes. And so we, we pray to him and kind of hope that he comes through. Other people think of God being like Zeus. Some people think he's just an old man wearing a robe with a huge beard. When you talk to people about what he's like, some people think that God is passive, that he's distant. Other people think that God's just always angry and he's ready to come down and punish us. Some people think that God is like a hippie and he's super loving and and peaceful and and all of these different opinions are out here. But when you think about scripture being God-breathed, that means that this is not merely man's opinion, Scripture is God's self-revelation. It teaches us what he's really like. So we're not looking for opinions about God. We're trying to see who God has revealed himself to be, and Scripture is profitable to teach us that. All right? The next thing Scripture is profitable for is reproof and correction. Now, these, these, these two things go together. It's the bad news and the good news. Reproof is bad correction is good, right? Not bad, just the bad news. Think about it like this. Um, So if you walk up to my house, I have a really awkward setup. You have to walk through a breezeway to get to our front door. The breezeway has a sliding door. And so people walk past and they see us and they're like, huh. Then they go to the front door and knock. And so it's really weird. So friends know that you just go to the sliding door strangers knock on the front door, right? But um, recently my son like ripped the sliding door in a way that broke it. And I was like, ah! So we had to start using our front door. And I honestly, we never use our front door. So we had to start opening our front door. And um, as we start using the front door, I noticed there's there's the door and like, what's the little window to the side of the door called? A sidelight? Something, it has a name, all right? So, like, so the door frame is bigger than just a door, but I noticed that that side light at the very bottom of our door, it would shift whenever I'd open the door. And I was like, that doesn't look good. And so called a buddy to come look at it. And He goes, Jeff, it's, it's rotted. He goes, water has been seeping into that and it's now rotted out all the way to the wall. He's like, you've got to rip out that door and get a new one. I'm like, ah, what's that going to cost? And he gave me the price. It's like, Um, can you help me? He's like, nope. (laughs) Uh, He's like, I can demo the thing, but I can't install the thing. So if you know a guy, let me know. All right, but all that to say, that's the bad news. The bad news is that my door has rotted out and it needs to be replaced. That's reproof. Correction though, shows us how to rebuild. Correction shows us what restoration looks like. So Scripture's not just showing us what's wrong or what needs to change in our lives. It's saying, yes, this is wrong, but here's how to make it right. Here's what, here's what needs to change, but here's what good looks like. So it doesn't just provide the bad. It also provides the way to restoration. It also provides the way to Christ-likeness. So Scripture is good for, for reproof and correction. Then the next thing is, it's good for training in righteousness. And you think about righteousness, that's just, that's godly character. So scripture is good for training in godly character. So if teaching is orthodoxy, right belief, training is what we would call orthopraxy or right practice. So scripture teaches us how to believe rightly about who God is, and it also teaches us how to behave rightly as God's people, All right. So that word training, it's it's often used for a kid being brought up, right? And so the goal of parenting is that you would create future adults. You might not believe this, but like, but your hope in raising a kid is that one day this child will become a contributing member to society, right? Now there's a show back in the day called Arrested Development, and the show it followed the the uh, the Beluth family, and and so this was a. And a, a real estate kind of mogul family in Orange County, California, but the dad was doing some corrupt things. Dad gets thrown into prison, the family loses it all, and then you have one mature sibling, right? You have one mature sibling, Mike, right, or Michael, and then you have the rest of the siblings who are grown adults, yet they act like spoiled, dysfunctional teenagers who have never grown up. Right. And so so, so they're what this is what we would call delayed adolescence, but the show coined the phrase, it's arrested development. Right? Like these are people who grew up physically, but never grew up in their maturity. Right. And so for us, what we need to know is God's desire for your life is not for you to stay in spiritual infancy. God's desire is for you to move towards spiritual maturity. And so scripture is what teaches us what to believe, to know God rightly, but it also teaches us how to behave as his people, right? So it teaches us how to, how to grow and to mature in our faith. And then verse 17 talks about it, it equips us for every good work, which means scripture teaches us the principles we need to live our lives as Jesus would live them if he were in our shoes, so if you're like, would Jesus buy this car or that car? You're like, where does it say that in the Bible? It's not going to tell you like a direct answer, but Scripture gives us the principles to apply to our lives to live like Jesus would live if he were in our shoes. This morning as I was praying through the text, and I was like, what would, what would Jesus do? How would Jesus respond to 2 Timothy 3? I was, I was asking that question in prayer this morning, and pretty quickly God brought me to, to Matthew 4, 4, where Jesus is being tempted and he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God's mouth. And and what that means is is scripture, the word of God, is meant to nourish us spiritually, right? So as you take in scripture and you absorb that nourishment, that gives you the ability to to have the outflow of of thinking like Jesus would think, of feeling like Jesus would feel and doing what Jesus would do, And so we want to nourish ourselves with Scripture so that we can be equipped for every good work or so that we can be equipped to live our lives as Jesus would live them if he were in our shoes. All right, so, so here's the big idea today. The big takeaway is this. There's no better way to know God's character, his nature, his goodness, and the abundant life he has for us than to be in God's word, right? There's no better way to know God's character, his nature, his goodness, and the abundant life he has for us than to be in his word. Hebrews 4, 4.12 tells us that the word of God is living and active, which means it's at work to transform our lives from one degree to the next to be more and more like Jesus. All right, so think about this. Um, The mission of Redeemer, like what are we about as a church? What do we want to do? What do we want to be about? We want to know God, we want to become like Jesus, and we want to help others do the same. That's our threefold mission. So we want to know God, right, for who he is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, through a relationship with Jesus Christ, right? We want to know God for who he is, not for who we want him to be. So how do we know God? How do we know him for who he is? We know him through his self-revelation or through Scripture. So we want to know God, for, not for, from man's opinion, but from God's self-revelation. The second thing is we want to become like Jesus. But if we want to become like Jesus, we need to know who he is and how he lived his life. But think about this. Um, when it comes to Jesus, there are more books written about Jesus, more songs sang to Jesus, more pictures painted of Jesus than any other figure in all of human history, and they don't all agree. I mean, everybody has an opinion of Jesus. Some people think that Jesus was a prophet like Muhammad. Some people believe that Jesus was merely an enlightened teacher like Gandhi. Some people believe that Jesus was um, the archangel Michael that just kind of came in human form and then went back to heaven. Other people believe that Jesus was, was God's first spirit child or that he was a God but not the God. Other people think that he was an evil man who deceived the masses. Other people think that he was a myth or a legend or that his followers fabricated a story about Him and made Him to be someone He never claimed to be. There are so many opinions about Jesus. If you go back 2,000 years just read the New Testament. People thought that Jesus was crazy, that he had lost his mind. That's how his family felt about him. Religious leaders thought he was demonically possessed. Word on the street was that he was a ghost or some type of prophet who had resurrected from the grave. And the demons are like, we think he's the Holy One of God. Like even 2,000 years ago, the, the question about who he is was being debated. And so like, how do we know who Jesus is and what he was like? Through God's self-revelation or through God's Word. All right, and so so if we want to know God and become like Jesus, we've got to be a church that is biblically serious. So here's the question, how can we be a biblically serious church? Like what does it look like for us to say, hey, from, from, from the past to this day forward um, and, and into the future, we will be committed to being biblically serious? What does that look like? First, that means we're going to always preach the Word. We will always be a church that preaches the Word of God. Look, I'm not Oprah Winfrey, I'm not Dr. Phil. I'm not here to give you good advice. I'm here to give you Jesus. And I give you Jesus by proclaiming the Word of God. I've did some research in my computer this week, and so I've been here about eight and a half years, and when we finish Revelation, which will be right before Easter, we will have preached through 18 books of the Bible, doing the math. We will get through every book of the Bible by the time I'm 67. (laughs) And then I will retire, all right? But God willing and the creek don't rise, we're going to preach through every book of the Bible because we are always going to be a church that is proclaiming the word of God, right? We will be a biblically serious church in our preaching. The second thing is we are biblically serious in our life groups. I think that inspiration typically happens on a Sunday morning, but transformation happens throughout the week as you live out your faith in biblical community. So our life groups dive deeper into God's word and seek to say, let's not just hear the word, but what does it look like for us to do the word? How does this apply to our, to our work, to our marriage, to our, to our um, school, to our neighborhood? What does it look like for this to be lived out in the world? It's where we take steps of obedience to become more like Christ. So our life groups are going to help us to be biblically serious. Um, Bible studies. We've got, a, we've got a men's Bible study that's connecting the dots between faith and word coming up. We've got a women's ministry Bible study where they're going to go through the book of Esther. We have a brand new class. I'm telling you, like if you are like, Jeff, I don't know how to read the Bible. I don't know how to study the Bible. We are having a class for 10 weeks that will equip you to study the Bible for the rest of your life. You're like, Jeff, 10 weeks sounds like a really long time. You've got the rest of your life to live this out. Give yourself 10 weeks to set yourself up for a lifetime of being nourished, not just by bread alone, but from every word that comes from the Father's mouth. Here's something else I'm excited about. Um, I'm gonna do a three-part series this spring. So our mission is to know God, become like Jesus, and help others do the same. So on February 4th, I'm gonna teach a class on how to study the book of Matthew. So it's not about reading um, for, quant- for, for, for quality, it's read- reading for quantity, or um, not reading for quantity, but reading for quality. So I'm gonna teach you how to approach and how to study the book of Matthew. I'm gonna give you a month, a month to then apply that and to study the book of Matthew. We'll follow that up right, with another class, which is gonna be like, what was Jesus like? Who is the real Jesus? And guess what we're going to do? We're going to use Matthew as our source document. All right? So I'm going to teach you to study Matthew. Then we're going to look at and build out what was Jesus like and how did he live his life based off of Matthew being our source document. So we're going to know God. We're going to become like Jesus. But the third part of the mission statement is help others do the same. So the third seminar I'm going to teach is then how do we, following Jesus's life, mentor and disciple like Jesus would mentor and disciple. Right? so we're going to do, like, that's a three-part series, so just come once a month, and we'll teach you how to study Matthew, we'll teach you what Jesus is like, and we'll teach you how to disciple like Jesus discipled. All that to say, look, we are doing everything that we can within reason to, to not just to be a biblically serious church, but to help you be biblically serious Christians, right? Because we truly believe that this is not just man's opinion, but this is the very Word of God given to us, and this is is God's personal invitation to his heart. We believe there's no better way to know God's heart, to know his goodness, to know his character, to know the abundant life he has for us than to be people who are biblically serious. So we will be a biblically serious church from this day forward, All right. So now we know that for us to, to be a kite caught in a hurricane of God's grace, we're gonna need to be generously driven. We're gonna need to be biblically serious, and next week, we're going to look at what it means for us to be missionally active. So you got to come back. All right, let me pray for us. God, thank you for your word. We want to be a people who are serious about knowing you. God, we don't want to just imagine you to be someone in the sky left to our own thoughts and dreams. We want, we want to know you for who you've revealed yourself to be because we believe that in you there is life abundant life, eternal life. And so, Father, help us to know you. God, I ask that you would create a spirit within Redeemer, that we would hunger for your word, that we would hunger to be spiritually nourished by by your self-revelation, and that you would work those spiritual nutrients into the depths of our being so that we would begin to think more like Jesus, so that we would feel more like Jesus, and so that we would do the things that Jesus would do if he were in our shoes. So God, help us to be a people who are biblically serious for you. It's in your holy name that we pray, amen.